Uh, I'll begin with a question for your pondering, and you don't have to answer out loud. But what do persecution and false doctrine have in common? What similar effect does persecution and false doctrine tend to have on professing Christians? What, what commonality do we, do we find in persecution and false doctrine? To the Jewish Christians to whom the New Testament book of Hebrews was first written, the Jewish Christians were facing both persecution and false doctrine. Persecution, of course, is, is the opposition that followers of Jesus are sure to face in the midst of a sin-loving world. And while we in America are beginning to face various degrees of social and verbal opposition, some of the Jewish Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was first written, some of them were being publicly ridiculed and beaten and plundered and even imprisoned on account of their faith in Christ. As we might imagine, the physical persecution they were facing was causing some of them to shrink back from the gospel message. At the same time, as if that weren't enough, some of these Jewish Christians were entertaining false doctrine. False doctrine, of course, is any idea or belief or teaching that adds to or takes away from or contradicts or nullifies God's word. And some of these Jewish Christians were affirming a particularly dangerous false doctrine. I'll explain. You see, their local church community, which was likely in the city of Rome, their church community was not solely comprised of Jewish Christians, but also of Gentile Christians. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with that people group, the Gentile Christians were men and women who had heard and believed the gospel message of Jesus and they were growing in their love for God and toward others while increasing in the fruit of the Spirit. But as Gentiles, they were not adhering to the law of Moses that had historically distinguished God's people, the Jews, from the rest of the world. The Gentiles had been brought into God's new covenant community, the church, by grace apart from the law. By grace apart from the law. And it was the whole notion of it. These Gentiles apart from the law being brought into this covenant community of believers. The whole notion of it was a stumbling block to many of the Jewish Christians. Just as the Apostle Paul said would be the case in 1 Corinthians 1.23. Some of the Jewish Christians in this local fellowship that was likely in the city of Rome, some of them were looking down their noses at and even segregating themselves from the Gentile Christians of their local church. And as if that weren't a big enough problem, some of them were even beginning to question the deity of Christ altogether. Their reasoning was, well, Jesus, yes, He's a part of God's redemptive plan, but he's not superior to the temple 
or the priests or the sacrifices, and he's certainly not superior to Moses and the prophets. Jesus' death and resurrection has cleansed us from sin, yes, but it is our adherence to the law of Moses that maintains us as God's people. Do you, do you hear? These Jewish Christians were attempting to merge the gospel with Judaism, and thereby they were denying the gospel. And this is what false doctrine has in common with persecution. It seduces professing Christians into shrinking back from the good news of Christ. And this is why the book of Hebrews was written. This letter, which reads like a sermon and which quotes from the Old Testament more than any other book in the New, this letter was written in order to correct the Jewish Christians who were affirming false doctrine, and it was written in order to comfort the Jewish Christians who were facing persecution. Theologian Philip Hughes calls the book of Hebrews a tonic, a medicine for those who are spiritually weary and debilitated. The book of Hebrews, he writes, takes us beneath the surface to the profound depths of our Christian faith, enriching and establishing our understanding of the grace of God that has been made manifest on our behalf. John Calvin wrote, there is indeed no holy scripture which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ as the book of Hebrews. No holy scripture which so splendidly extols the power and worth of Jesus' unique sacrifice and no holy scripture which explains more fully that he is indeed the end of the law. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. How's that for starters? It might have been Paul or Barnabas or Apollos or Luke. We don't know for sure. But the author, whomever he is, offers both spiritual comfort to the weary and theological correction to the wavering. And he does both of those things with one single serum the supremacy of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're wanting to deepen your understanding of what the new covenant in Christ is and why it is more glorious than the old, if you're wanting to understand the reason why we, many of us being Gentile Christians, look and act and worship the way that we do, if you're weary or disheartened by our world's increasing animosity toward we who are in Christ, well, today, we begin what will, Lord willing, be a 29-week series, sweet mercy, through the book of Hebrews in a series we've entitled The Supremacy of Christ. And we've planned a couple of breaks here and there, but if all goes according to schedule, this series, which I am so excited for will take us through the end of August. And so, with fear and trembling, and without 
And without any further ado, I'd invite you to open your Bibles or scripture journals or devices to Hebrews chapter 1. I will read verses 1 through 4, but our focus for the remainder of our time will be verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Oh, Father... Let your name be hallowed in our hearts and in this space. And we ask that you would carry us by your Holy Spirit into greater understanding of this word, of your word, which is profitable to us. Teach us and conform us and help us to glory in Christ, your son, who is supreme. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but if I were to write a letter to my fellow Christians who are weary and wavering, I'd probably begin with something like, dear friends, it's Chris. I'm really sad to hear of your troubles. I'm really concerned for your spiritual well-being, and I've got some things I'd like for you to chew on. And I pray that these words would comfort you and correct you and bring you some much-needed courage. I think that's how I would begin a letter like this. But the author of this letter doesn't even waste ink on a greeting. (laughs) He opens with theological dynamite. He opens by telling them who Christ is and what Christ has done. Isn't it peculiar that a letter written to professing Christians begins with who Christ is and what Christ has done? I mean, hadn't these Jewish Christians graduated from the gospel by now? Hadn't they moved on to deeper deeper and, and, and weightier matters? No. Because the gospel that saves us is the gospel that refines us and protects us and keeps us until the end. When we face persecution, there is no greater comfort than the supremacy of Christ above all things. And when we are being lured away by false doctrine, there is no greater corrective than the supremacy of Christ above all things. 
But for the writer of Hebrews, the story of our redemption doesn't begin at the cross. That's where it culminates. For the writer of Hebrews, the gospel begins, verse 1, long ago. Long ago. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when Christ's coming was first promised, God has progressively, incrementally spoken through the prophets, men like Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. All of these prophets spoke on God's behalf, yes, but now, but now, holy smokes, in these last days, at the dawn of a new age and for the inauguration of a new covenant, God has spoken again. This time, he hasn't spoken through prophets who spoke on his behalf. This time, he has spoken to us through himself, through his own divine son. In verses 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews is already going after the Jewish Christians who were diminishing the supremacy of Christ by elevating the prophets to look him in the eyes. Before we move on, though, we need to marvel at something for a few moments. We need to marvel that God speaks to us at all. <laughs> We need to marvel at this fact that God communicates to us because he wants to be known by us. He wants to be known. The God who made the heavens and the earth wants us to know him, to see his handiwork, and to walk in right relationship with him. God communicates his existence to us through the things he has made. Theologians refer to this as general revelation. General revelation. The swarming oceans and towering mountains and shining stars, the beautifully diverse fruit-producing trees and animals and all the peoples of the earth these things did not materialize on their own, no matter what the scientists will tell you. By our existing, God intends us to know that he exists. And he not only speaks to us through general revelation, he speaks to us through what theologians refer to as special revelation. He speaks to us in scripture. Through the writings of Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and Ezekiel and so on. From the book of Genesis and all the way through the book of Revelation. God incrementally reveals to us more and more about himself and about his rebelling world. And about the people whom he is shaping by the winds of grace to dwell with him forever. The climactic conclusion 
of God's special revelation, the climactic conclusion, the apex, pinnacle, crescendo, what have you, to God's word is the gospel. The paradigm-shifting crescendo of the Bible is revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ who completely fulfills every last promise and type and shadow alluded to by the Old Testament prophets. As theologian Al Mohler puts it, Christ is the conclusion to an already existing story found in the Old Testament and in another sense and at the same time, Christ's coming, well, it's God's revelation through his son that something entirely new is upon us. It's no wonder why the writer of Hebrews opens up with, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, yes, but, but, you're not hearing me, but, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. This is Christ. The second member of the Trinity who, at the perfect moment of human history, put on flesh and bone, Christ came to tell us who God is by showing us who God is. Christ is supreme over and above the Old Testament prophets. As Pastor Ed will, Lord willing, unpack next week, Christ is supreme over and above God's angelic messengers. The entirety of Hebrews chapter 1 is dedicated, and so will the subsequent chapters, but the entirety of chapter 1 is dedicated to making sure that we know Christ is supreme. You have him, you have everything. You know him, you know it all. You behold him, you're beholding it all. You cling to him, you're clinging to it all. For the few remaining moments we have this morning, from the second half of verse two through verse three, we'll consider six remarkable traits that the writer of Hebrews relays to us about Christ if you're a slower note taker, you could lump all of this into like one point. You could say, all right, Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, who Christ is and what Christ has done. You could do that. Or if you're a quicker writer, a fast note taker, or if you plan to revisit this, the recording of this message, you can actually outline the remainder of our time using six points. And I'll be quick. We got a book. I'm not going to be like Mitch Marcheski last week. <laughs> 52 minutes, sweet mercy. <laughs> Brother, you could have shortened that in half. <laughs> he did bring the word, amen. Number one, Christ is the appointed heir of all things. You'll have to listen to this to get them repeated. Number two, Christ is the agent through whom the universe was made. Three, 
Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Four, Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Five, Christ is the upholder of the universe by the word of his power. And six, Christ has completed for all time the purification of his people. We've got to move. Point number one, Christ is the God-appointed heir of all things. But in these last days, verse two, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This language might be a little confusing at first, but it's consistent with something that God reveals about himself throughout scripture. He is triune. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit share the same nature and essence and together they comprise one perfectly unified God but they also each possess a distinct personhood. They each possess intellect, emotion, and volition And they also each possess unique roles in creation and redemption. Here, describing the son as an appointed heir, the writer of Hebrews is communicating that all that we picture as belonging to God the Father, it's been extended to God the Son. To Christ belongs all glory, all honor, all dominion, all authority, over the entire universe that will soon be purged of evil and remade in splendor. To the Christians who first read this, it would have no doubt served as a comfort. It would have also served as a corrective. Christ is God. He is the victor of the God-appointed end of this age. And he is the heir of all that has belonged to God since eternity past. Brothers and sisters, here's how we might be encouraged by this. When you are slandered, when you are mocked or ostracized for following Christ, do you know what that carries with it? Romans 8, 16 and 17. Listen to this. God, the Spirit, bears witness with yours that you are a child of God. And because you are a child of God, you are his heirs. You are co-heirs with Christ. When we suffer as Christ suffered, we can know we will be glorified with him. What a strangely comforting little nugget of wonderful explosive truth that we can put in our pockets when we're being mistreated on account of our faith in Christ. Verse two, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. Point number two, Christ is the agent through whom the universe was made. Again, 
In the context of the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead were active in the creation of the universe. We learn in Genesis 1 that God the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, that God the Father spoke, and God the the Son was the word the Father spoke. John 1 tells it this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, emanating from God, and the word was God. And all things were created through him, and apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. There would have been comfort in this for the Jewish Christians who were the first to receive this letter. I love how theologian Raymond Brown puts it. Surely, the Christ whose hands shaped the universe and summoned the galaxy of stars into being, surely that same Christ could hold steady these persecuted Christians and guide them through times of adversity. If the Son of God could do this, he can sustain us. Verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Point number three. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. This trait of Christ no doubt carried a corrective significance for the Jewish Christians. You see, the glory of God that had been seen by their ancestors on Mount Sinai when the law of Moses was given, that glory was overshadowing this glory. The glory of God that had been seen by their ancestors at the tent of meeting where their ancestors once worshipped was overshadowing the glory of Christ. And Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. The writer of Hebrews is insisting here that at no previous time in redemptive history has the glory of God been more perfectly manifest than in God's Son, Christ Jesus. And we get to read about him and know him and walk with him and be like him. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Number four, Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Once again, as Raymond Brown observes, Christ bears the very stamp of God's nature And all the attributes of God are made visible in him. Right? When a stamp is pressed onto paper or into metal, it leaves behind the exact image. And so it is with Christ. If we want to see God, who is holy and just and merciful and sovereign and good, we needn't look any further than into the face of Jesus. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Ah, number five. Christ is the upholder of the universe by the word of his power. This is some lofty language, man. In times of adversity, may we recite this to ourselves over and over again. As much as Christ was present and active in the creation of the universe, he is presently present and active today. By Christ's present and active power, the stars are holding their positions in the sky. The oceans are obeying their boundaries. The spring flowers will surely bloom on schedule. Some of them are already coming up a little bit because it got warm there for a second. And we, and we, because of Christ's present and active power, we continue to live and move and our souls have been awakened by him. Were Christ... Let this just boggle your mind for a second. Were Christ to withhold his sustaining power for just a moment, all space and all matter and all life and all faith would cease to exist. Conversely, and here's an encouragement, through whatever opposition and persecution this world may conjure, through whatever opposition we may face in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools and gyms, whatever opposition we may face on behalf of Christ, we may rest assured that the one who holds the world in his hand, he will bring his people home. He is the upholder of the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory. Now, notice with me the present, the present tenses of the words that the writer of Hebrews uses here. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, uh, imprint of his nature. He upholds, like ongoingly, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Now notice with me the conclusion of our passage, the past tense, the completed tense that is used. After making purification for sin, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, signifying a completed work, sitting down in completion. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Point number six, Christ has completed for all time the purification of his people. This is an idea that the writer of Hebrews is going to repeatedly emphasize. The Jewish Christians, many of whom he was writing to, many of, many of them were 
we're, we're, we're merging the gospel with Judaism and meandering on back into the sacrificial system? No. For there is now no sacrifice to be made for sin. They were trying to merge the gospel with Judaism. But anytime we merge Jesus with anything else, we forfeit Jesus. Because Christ has died on a cross once in order to purify people of every nation and language from their sins, past, present, and future, there is now no sacrifice to be made because there is now no condemnation to be born. I love how our assurance of grace passage sings in agreement with this part of our passage. The Apostle John, I write these things to you who plainly and simply and repentantly believe in the name of the Son of God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life now and tomorrow and forever you have it it is finished by grace you have been saved through faith and none of this is your own doing from start to finish it has been God's gift to you how on earth why on earth would we shrink back from this gospel but to try and marry it with our own efforts there is nothing. Believer, if you trust Christ by believing in his resurrected name after dying on behalf of you and your sin, if you believe that, there is nothing you can add to God's pleasure that now rests upon you. Your perfect performance is like vinegar to a thirsty king. Your performance, your obedience on a daily basis is deluded with this misplaced understanding that you're somehow adding to God's pleasure for you, his, his pleasure over you. And I'm arrogant to think the same thing. And on my worst day, when I'm fledgling and failing all over the place, I somehow think that God is less pleased with me. No, 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 no. That's not how grace works. Grace works like this. If you are in Christ, you are a servant within whom, when with whom God is well pleased. Past, present, and future. And it's the kindness of that whole majestic, glorious gospel that leads us to be hungry for his word, to walk in his ways, to glorify him with our lips and our lives. But Christ has, if you are in Christ, he has completed for all time the process of making you pure and holy and worthy. And now we get to live lives worthy of the gospel. If that is not you here this morning, I've got to do a bit better of a job at this from time to time. If you have not trusted in Christ, whose death and resurrection is all that God looks to for atonement of sin, would you trust him today? 
I mean, would you put your trust in it? Believe that he did it on your behalf. And that in Christ, with a, with a mustard seed-sized seed faith, all of the promises find their yes for you in Christ. Would you believe that? And brothers and sisters, I don't have a ton of action items to bring this time to a close this morning except for this. Let's continue to believe the good news of Jesus, shall we? Let us not shrink back. The persecution and opposition that we face is but for, mo for a moment. And it is to unfold a glory that is unceasing. You just wait. You wait. And so will I. In the meantime, we'll clutch arms together. We'll wade through this together and the Holy Spirit will keep us. And let us not go through about our day today thinking as though we are adding in any way to the work that Christ has already done. If you go and have the most righteous day you've ever lived, guess what? Thanks be to God. And it's all about the gospel still. It's all about Christ crucified and resurrected. That saves you. That keeps you. It refines you. It fulfills you. And it brings you to completion. It's all the gospel. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Oh, Father, we bless the Godhead. Father, Spirit, Son. Thank you for the unique roles, Father and Spirit and Son, that each of you played in our creation and in our redemption and in our being kept. And we thank you for the name of Christ Jesus that reigns supreme. Lord, I pray that you would allow our hearts to be reinvigorated revived, rekindled, and strengthened as we face increasing opposition and as we are tempted with many doctrines that are hovering around this world and being heralded by false preachers, help us to maintain this. It's scandalous, but it's beautiful. By grace, we have been saved through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ who is supreme. It's in his name we pray and it's in his name we sing. Amen.